0: Hello and welcome to the third episode of Dr. Dark After Dark. Today we're going to talk about a subject that some people won't like. So the episode's titled, We Did See It Coming, Just Needed a Pin. I'm first going to talk about cycles. So a six-year-old can tell you, if you show them a GDP chart, that GDP... If you see a growth chart of GDP, you can see it goes up and down, up and down. Now, it tends upwards over time. But a 6 year can tell you it goes up and down. It's a cycle. It's the business cycle. Yet, economists are much more linear in how they talk about this, with their extrapolations. You very rarely hear an economist saying, well, you know, I've modelled the next 20 years, and of course, well, we should expect two to three recessions because the business cycle. You don't tend to hear that. Politicians don't like to hear that. That's why their projections tend to always be overly optimistic. And you know, there are lots of different cycles. So, you know, broadly, there's a one to two hundred year cycle of superpowers in the world, i.e., countries. This is quite related to the world's reserve currency. So, you went from Portugal to Spain, to Netherlands, to Britain, and then finally to the US. If we look at the last four to five hundred years. Uh, normally these cycles have ended with massive conflict. So most notably recently, that would have, well not recently, but it would have been between World War I and World War II when the pound gave way to the US dollar. And again, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, um, and so that's a very long-term cycle. That is a long-term debt cycle, which is about 70 to 80 years. So Ray Dalio has talked about this a lot. He's got some great videos on it. One example is 1928 and then to 2008, well there's 80 years. Um, That was the big debt super cycle. Now, my personal theory is humans live to about 70 or 80 years. So one reason the cycle is about this is because you have no memory in people of the last kind of mega crash. So whilst we can read about 1928, no one trading now was trading in 1928 not possible so and whilst we can read about it um, experiencing whether it's bull market bear market whatever is the way that you really learn from stuff by the way everyone should read and certainly study history history has a habit of um uh, not repeating itself but rhyming that is not my quote but i can't remember who said it so we have this long-term debt cycle, then there are shorter-term uh, debt cycle of around 15 years, and then below that you have um, the business cycle of, say, five to seven years. But it's been 11 years as of now. Now, of course, it's ended. But you know, these cycles matter, just like uh, Steve Van Meter today was talking about sunspots and solar activity. And again, that correlates very well with business cycle um the the sun i mean it's just science fact right that um it has a uh, solar minima um and every five six seven years but it you can track it going back um for hundreds of years on nasa's website and um this uh actually does correlate well actually i think it's a little longer than that i can't remember the exact number but you had a minimum in 08 and now you've got another one so yeah that would be about 12 years and it just means it's slightly less warm, on average. Um, and uh, when when and then that correlates to a bit less business activity. People go outside less and do less stuff. Again, it's not hocus pocus. I mean, that, that's just scientific fact that there are cycles in the sun. So cycles matter. And the reason I can say we did see this coming is there are people who saw 2000 coming, 2008 coming, and 2020 coming, and in the meantime, in between, they were bullish on stocks, but became very bearish in the lead up. So I'm not talking about the people that every year say the world's going to end, that there are people, um, and by the way, sometimes they get a false positive, so they can be you know, nearly right, but not quite. But um, there are several people, and again, a lot of them are very famous hedge fund managers that don't have a high profile because most money managers make the biggest returns in bear markets, not bull markets, because bear markets happen fast. And so the returns, if you get it right, can be huge. So emerging markets peaked in 2017, uh, and I mean the stock markets. And then you had a peaking in Europe, US peaked um, the actual economy in Q3 18. Uh, and then, and when I mean the economy, I mean the actual growth in GDP. It t- topped out at about three percent, which is very weak for a U.S. cycle. And of course, in Q4 18, U.S. stocks had a horrible kind of 20% correction, but rebounded back pretty quickly. But that was a that was a first big warning sign. You know, the growth had peaked in a rate of change turn. And bonds were telling you to be worried. So that people at the time were saying bond yields in the 10-year will go up to 5%, 6%. Yeah, kind of more historic normal levels. Well, they topped out at 3.5. They're now at 0.7. But they've pretty much been on a, you know, just down since, you know, from 3.5 steadily at first, but and then more quickly recently. But it'd been one-way street. So the bond market, saw that there was going to be some form of slowdown you know therefore you know it, it thinks it might it's slowdowns tend to be deflationary um yeah it was not thinking inflation is going out of control the bond market tends to be pretty good at predicting things versus the stock market um and you know so in 2019 there was certainly slowing data um, and let's just talk about us data from an economic perspective i mean europe was clearly slowing as well you know q3 was probably the worst quarter uh, in 19 and then trump suddenly started to work out he can pump the stock market with all the trade war stuff so q4 was this kind of bizarre like i mean i don't know if it was like the kind of reflationary bounces we had in early 08 uh and we had in early 2000 um Because, you know, it wasn't like, well, something like oil was going up in, say, um, late December, early Jan, but it wasn't, you know, in triple figures. So Q419 was just this weird quarter where the market moved more with someone tweeting than anything else. But, again, like. curious folk out there we're we're talking about world dollar liquidity which of course turns off most people and we talked about this in the first episode you had tax cuts in the us uh, which meant a lot of cash got repatriated to the us caused reduction in world dollar liquidity you had the trade war so you had uh, an increase in net exports Um, and so if people are importing proportionately less that means you're not paying for them in dollars Um, and now if you actually look below the line here so net exports go up that's positive to gdp but what was really happening was both imports and exports were actually going down year on year it's a bearish sign so most people just talked about the gdp number and the effect on it but if you just go and look at the data on the i think it's the census bureau site it's there every month anyone can download it there's pages and pages of tables of data at the end. I mean, it's incredible the amount of um, granularity that there is for free. Then there's the oil shock, which happened, of course, in early, well, 2020. And of course, COVID, no one could see coming if you go back to 2019, but you certainly could from the beginning of 2020. So all this was causing the world dollar liquidity cycle to really seize up. Um, and it's called Triffin's dilemma. So if you're if you're the world reserve currency, you have to run a large trade deficit in order to fund the demand for your currency, as in dollars right now. And a lot of the things that were happening were were, were crushing world dollar liquidity. But you know, nineteen. You know, as I said, it had it ups and downs. Q Q three was very much risk off. Treasury sent a warning. The yield curve first inverted, I think, in May, in the 10-year, 10, 10 3-month. And the yield curve inverting tends to mean, it does not mean there's a recession imminently. It means normally within 6 to 18 months there will be a recession. And by the way, it's going to have to uninvert generally before that recession. And it's not, the mainstream media, as soon as it uninverted, but like, oh, everything's fine. I don't know how they can, how anyone can look at the data and say that, but they just don't care. And remember that they have a different agenda. So... They want stocks high. Why? Because then people, you know, the economy is good. And how's their business funded? Advertising. Well, what happens? What's the first thing to get cut in a downturn? Advertising. So just be aware of, you know, conflicts. And then, so Q419 was, as I said, very much, you know, this kind of risk on Trump thing. Um, and, you know, it, it was just its own flavor. It was its rhyme. It was the rhyming of like early 08 when oil went crazy, early 2000 where you had actually a bunch of liquidity given by the Fed because of the Y2K problem. Go and look it up if you don't know what that is, uh, which ended up not being a problem. And the Fed pulled it, um, that liquidity, pretty quickly. And potentially that's what caused the top in the in the, the dot com boom. I mean, it, the, the top happened within weeks of it being pulled. That was actually very similar to now. So in 2019, Q4, 19, I was thinking, well, this is much more like 2000. So you've got this tech situation. Tech keeps going up. You've got some crazy stuff happening with Tesla. It, I'm not saying Tesla is a bad company, but it doesn't make sense that it's valued. One could argue valuation doesn't matter. But you know, hearing stories of someone, students opening Robinhood accounts and buying call options on Tesla, like, yeah, that really smelled like a top But you know, th- there's no point trying to call tops. Um, you you can um, go crazy trying to do that. You don't need to call it either. But it did feel like the economy was on a knife edge. Uh, European data was really weak in nineteen, especially Germany, um, Italy in recession. This is before COVID. Um, Germany teetering on it. You know, they had a positive quarter by 0.1% and negative one by minus 0.1%. Like, you know, it was, the UK was in the same boat. A lot of this was Brexit related. You know, Europe was really sputtering. Um, and Japan was very weak too. And again, Q4 data in Japan was minus 6% GDP. So Japan, deep recession before all this uh, COVID stuff. And so then, well, at the time we called it Corona. Corona came, Uh, I first started hearing about it at the end of December, but I live in Hong Kong, and there's more chat here from China stuff, as you'd expect, right, versus if you live in a Western country, but there was nothing to really be concerned about then, apart from well, okay, it was something to to monitor, Um, but it was when, so just before Wuhan was locked down, which was... I can't remember the exact date, but around the 23rd, 4th, something like that of January. From mid-January, you, you, well, I started tracking the data. You've got daily data from Hubei province and China. And again, you can argue whether the data is right or wrong or whatever, but it was, the point is it's going to be giving a best case. So when your best case is 50% daily growth, <laughs> you know, doubling every, well, in fact, some days it was the number of cases literally doubled. It was 100% growth. Well, that's best case. Well, okay, well, that's pretty scary. Um, and so again, the data was in Chinese. you just needed Google Translate at first a few people were tracking this, and then of course, more and more people woke up to it. So this was how to get ahead of the curve at the time and then but the but the more important thing was to to look below the surface because the world's seen epidemics before that did not become pandemics, and so there were research papers out. In late January especially, uh, in so written by Chinese scientists because the data is from China, but in Western publications, the best Western publications like Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, um, and these were not peer-reviewed because when this type of thing happens, there's no time to peer-review. I was a scientist, right? peer review can be painful. It can take many, many, many months. You can have to revise things several times. That's not what happens when you have a potential pandemic. It gets published. And you know what? Some of it's going to be wrong. Some of it's going to be right. But that's, it's more important to get data out there. And most people taking decisions in most countries are aware that this data is not perfect. But there are two things especially that stuck out for me. One was that relatively high r naught. This is the transmissibility, so how many people you would infect on average if there were no social distancing measures. So at first it was a ra- being estimated around two, between two, two and a half. Comparison with the flu, flu is about 1.3, roughly. And by the way, these numbers, you can't know them to several decimal points. Um, but then what started to happen was... And, the papers suddenly started coming out there was one from los alamos and then there were others which were like well maybe it's three. Oh, it's we think four one was oh we think 6.08 which was i think the highest i saw again you can't be that accurate but but my point is it was like okay the trend is going upwards in what people think our naught is and this is an exponential function so the difference between two and three is actually is totally gargantuan um and if you can't don't know why just go and multiply two by two by two and keep pressing equals on your calculator then do the same with the number three and then the number four see how quickly the numbers scale and then the second thing came out so that was worrying but it was like okay well it's still controllable they're locking it down actually some of the numbers started to slow down in Wuhan Um, maybe this is containable you still couldn't say in kind of January the 25th or so, oh, this is going to be a global pandemic for sure. But then something else changed, which was, um, well, you had Chinese New Year. So at the same time, and Chinese New Year was fairly early this year, you had this massive migration of people around the world, a billion people, uh, well, mainly going across China, but a lot of them going across the world. Um, It's uh, it's a complete shutdown for a week of China. And... um, yeah literally have a billion people traveling great way to spread something and what came out in early February was that you had a systematic transmission now no one i had certainly never said those words before Um, and so I started reading about it and uh, I think Eric Townsend and Dr Chris Martinson were very early onto this as well Uh, so macro voices and peak prosperity and their point was like well look I mean you can have all these temperature checks at an airport but who cares if people are walking through that are infected but and can infect others and they're showing those symptoms you're not going to have a high temperature so you're going to travel if you feel really bad you're not going to travel so when i saw about the asymptomatic transmission that was really the that wasn't the nail in the coffin there was but i then worked out that i just needed to see one more thing to be to go into total risk off mode uh, and that was roughly second week of Fairbell's thinking this, which is need to see um, genuine community spread ideally outside of Asia. So you couldn't just say it's an Asia thing. So the first community spread started happening in Singapore. They did get it under control, but it, it was happening. and then of course it happened in Daegu in Korea, that literally you had like 700 cases from one lady that went to this church. Now, don't get me wrong, the church it does seem a bit crazy and people are incredibly close to each other. They um, touch each other and there was an absolute perfect place to spread stuff. It's not a normal church. Um, and um, But it it also showed that the higher r naught values were likely correct and you also had the Diamond Princess happening at the same time, um, the, which you know, ended up being the biggest Petri dish for it. Um, so you could yeah you could you, you could see that the higher noughts were more likely rather than less likely to be correct um and then of course you had italy so as soon as italy happened and and it's not a surprise it was northern italy a lot of people travel from china to go to milan uh you know Lake como big you know destination um and um yeah you couldn't have predicted it but it's you know again if you just look at Most notably, where are the flights from Wuhan? Where more flights went from Wuhan to a city, that city was much more likely in the early days to to get infected. It's just moving the people. And so when Italy happened, that was it for me. That was when I sold all equities. I'm like, you can't stop this now. Uh, You you can have all the temperature checks you want at an airport, but it's not going to do anything. Yes, Trump had stopped um, flights from China in late January. Well, people had already traveled to the U.S., because the Chinese New Year, en masse. So it was already there. Um And he wasn't stopping flights from Italy or Europe. So if it was in Italy, well, clearly it's going to be everywhere else in Europe. And the logic then would be, you know, UK will probably see it last just because it's out of Europe, because it's an island and sort of, you know, the end of the line in Europe. And this is exactly what started to kind of happen. You, you started seeing it in Spain, in Valencia, which was... Um, one reason was there was a football match between Milan or Bergamo, which was outside of Milan, um, and um, which was held in Milan because it was a big, big match and Bergamo Stadium couldn't hold it. And, and, and um, a bunch of people came from Valencia and then they went back. And of course, that became a hotspot in Spain. So you could just suddenly start seeing quite logically how it was spreading. So I think mid-Feb was the time where there was a genuine moment of a week or two where you could quite calmly say okay i don't need to take this risk um you know i was set up quite bearishly anyway so i just sold remaining equities and just into cash that was it simple um yeah and one other interesting piece of data that i was using a lot was the TomTom data so i first found out about this in kind of probably about 20th of jan so i was tracking the top 10 cities in china i think there wasn't data for cheyenne but the other nine of the top 10 there were data every well real time for congestion so it's not traffic levels it was quite misreported to be traffic it's congestion so if you have traffic below a certain level there is in effect no congestion congestion is actual traffic jams um but um but it was really helpful data and it was completely real time. And of course it was TomTom, Tom, a Dutch company. You, it's completely independent to any China government. And you could see where the lockdowns were more severe, where they weren't. And you could see on weekends, normal traveling, which is still true to this day. So in Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, like yeah, it's back to normal in, in the week. People have to travel, but on weekends people are not traveling. That's very, very interesting. So whilst a lot, a lot of people are not gonna like what I'm gonna say, I think this was a slow car crash. Don't get me wrong, it happened really fast in the end of Feb when markets went, they went. But the the build up we've had eleven years, right? To think cycles have ended is that that's just not the case. As long as there's greed in humans, you will have cycles. Don't think we've solved greed. And You were getting daily data from several governments around the world on the spread of this. And again, you can argue all day which data is correct or not, or whatever, but the data was always best case. I mean, none of them were saying numbers that were bigger than they really were. And the complete lack of testing in the US was just a massive, massive, massive red flag. That was actually just annoying me, that they could be so incompetent. And it was... uh, you know, when, when they had done what was it 400 tests when South Korea had done hundreds of thousands I mean it was kind of laughable so uh, again I was getting a little bit you know deeper into it but you could tell that US was gonna it had a lot of um yeah, it was being spread around America in February and no one was talking about it no one cared Europe was starting to care because of Italy Anyway, so I think that there are people, um, yeah. Sorry, there are there are people that put all this together. Uh, many people that did it a lot are not vocal. Uh, I'm not trying to say here, well, look how smart I am. It's just like, oh, no, it's just if you're tracking the data every day. Um, I have a I had a recession tracker. I still have it. Um, that I was doing in 2019 from when I saw the first data get kind of dodgy and it's all color-coded and I get the data, all the economic data and I'm writing it down in, well, it's a Google Sheet but, you know, and I write down the key data every day in a notebook. It sounds really old-fashioned but, like, it just forces you to understand it more. And, you know, I want to track this myself. I don't want... I might pay some other people to get insights but like I want to track the data myself the data that is trackable and there's so much free data out there now it doesn't take much time I mean as tracker I set up in about four hours one weekend and then it took each week I'd just update it with the data like it took maybe ten minutes easy and I was comparing it to all the previous recessions and almost recessions that we've had before So, i.e. things like 95-6, 98-9, 2013, 2015-16, where you didn't quite have recessions, but you certainly had slowdowns. And it was very clear the difference between them when you looked at the economic data. So, most ignored the signs. It's different this time. Even Ray Dalio. I mean... He came out with, that was the other thing which I remember at the time where he said cash is trash. I think at Davos. I'm like, that was happening at the same time as the Tesla stuff. And it's like, okay, this just, again, feelings shouldn't matter in investing. It's about probability and data um, in the long run. Yeah, you might get lucky with feelings now and again, but you won't forever. But again, these anecdotal things are helpful too. And, um, and then, you know, he obviously after the market crash, he went on and to do some, um, well, I don't know, damage limitation, I guess. I mean, it came out, they were over 20% down, and the whole point of Bridgewater is you, have, you get them to run your money because they're, they're not going to miss things like this. The whole thing is to not get caught with your pants down when the tide goes out. And they did this time. They missed it. I mean, how can people, with that many smart people, miss this? I have no idea. There was so much data available. It's kind of nuts. I mean, they have hundreds of super smart people. I mean, they could pay for any consultations of anyone, any expert on anything. I can only imagine. I mean, I do not know. I'm now speculating. But Ray or someone very senior there just decided that this is not going to be a problem. And that's that. And yeah I don't know but you know whenever you start hearing it's different this time these are again all the little um, red flags so where are we now well you know we had the super high volatility which was the initial kind of shock and realization that well in effect that europe and america are getting crushed by this and it's going to spread around the world and yeah that happened in uh, late feb and that morphed the 2000 to 2001 comparison into to, to it well it added to it the 2008 kind of comparison uh, it added in currency crisis in the late 90s comparison it added in 1987 comparison well i mean that was 22% down in one day but i mean we had 10% down days two of them um, very close to each other which again happened in 1928 29 um, so all of a sudden you put these things together and the only comparison is 1928 29 I mean you know, with GDPs you know when we started having PMIs measured in the teens, like Italy's came out the other day uh, for services. Um, it would, it would get This is minus 20, minus 30% GDP territory for Q2. There's no way it's a V-shape. There's a wonderful interview with the CEO, founder of China Beige Book on Real Vision. Um, I think you have to be, have the live access to, to get it. Fantastic interview um and if i look in my notes from it so yes i actually took notes from the interview i'm just finding them china beige book here we go it's not a v shape at all um q2 is going to be very bad even q3 looks like it will be bad people are going back to work in quotes but not back to growth. march has had a weak economic data just at the end of march got a little better the famous pmi that came out in march that showed it was flat because it was 51 and 52 for two different pmis um that everyone got up in arms about thinking it was a v-shape because they didn't understand how it was calculated he gets it completely he was talking about this um, I suspect Ed Harrison in the interview uh, actually had seen my tweet on it because uh, Raoul had retweeted it and he started talking about the PMI stuff. Um, yeah, he's like one belt, one road, totally overhyped, um, not at all worried on the Hong Kong dollar. Um, there were lots of really, really interesting insights and, 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 and they are tracking more data than anyone about China. And he's like, there's no way it's a V, no way you can argue all day if it's an l or a w or a u or a nike swoosh or whatever we talked about this last time but it was really interesting hearing it from him independently because he's absolutely all over the china data and is the probably the preeminent expert outside of china so where we are now is we're in this kind of bizarre situation so it's very like 28 29 um you've got a you had the first leg down which was brutally fast this time and then we've had a relief rally of roughly 20 percent ish here there um and who cares if that theoretically means we're in a bull market or not it doesn't matter. we're in a clearly the trend is bearish now maybe the relief rally goes up more maybe it doesn't we have no idea Um, we're going to have peak um, new cases already has happened in Italy it looks like it's happened in Germany it's not clear yet in France and Spain it's certainly not happened yet in UK it's probably not happened yet in America but it's hard to know it may be slowing again a lot of these countries aren't testing people unless they're in hospital Uh, but although the US now has done you know Obviously, it's tested millions, so I mean, it's actually finally ramped up its testing. The U.S. is incredible when it actually gets going. <laughs> it just took a long time to get the machine to get going. So now it probably has done more tests than even China, although we don't know the number in China. But those two countries are the top two. Um, you know, we, we still have this everything bubble. I mean, there's still crazy amounts of debt, um, which again was fine when asset prices were really high. Well, now they're not as high um and you know we've had two spates of deleveraging when uh liquidations happened and everything correlation of everything went to one this happened twice so far on the two largest down days on the market didn't happen on the third largest down day which i think eight percent um and so and so what you know when treasury so when the ty vix goes um um which is the treasury yield vix or the move index that Basically the same thing. When that spikes, you know, you know that there, that there, there's a there's a problem. You know, and right now the market just absolutely, totally, and utterly needs the Fed. And you could imagine if the Fed wasn't backstopping everything from well, not everything, but now corporate bonds, which they're not allowed to do, but they've got the work around. Very interesting if they ever do it with high yield um, and equities, just like the Bank of Japan does. We'll see. Uh, But, yeah, people are now uh, people who want to be bullish stocks. I just don't get it. You know, why? What's the point in having a bias? Like, you should just be bullish what you think the asset class is that makes or classes that make sense at that time. I mean, it's not rocket science. I mean, right now I'm bullish. Treasuries, gold, US dollar, Bitcoin. Well, you know what? Let's say I was American. I'm not. But does that make me? less American than someone that's bullish stocks? Well, wait a minute, I just said I'm bullish US debt and the US currency. Well, you know what? I want to be bullish to the stuff the Fed is buying, which is Treasuries. It's not buying stocks. Maybe it will one day. Um, it, it you know, Central Bank does buy some gold. Um, and, well, the US dollar is a much more complex, nuanced thing. We could have a whole episode on that. So... You know, we're in this end of this relief rally. Well, we don't know. It might not be. In 28-29, it happened for about six months. Things tend to be more compressed these days and faster. Um, and then, it of course, went brutally down in 1928-9 and ultimately went down over 80% from peak to trough. Um, I suspect we're not going to see something like that. I think someone like Raoul Powell, is. that's not a prediction of his, but he's saying that's possible, and it is absolutely possible. Because this is the biggest. Well, originally it was a supply shock. Remember that when it was Apple wasn't going to get its iPhones from China. Well, now it's no one wants to buy an iPhone in the West, and now the factories in China can make stuff again, but there's no one to sell them to. So it's like a giant whack-a-mole. So I don't know what's going to happen next. I'm pretty confident that we're going to see new lows. So what you're seeing now is you're seeing, you basically see. Some lower highs, some higher lows in the S and P. You're compressing this. This is exactly happened around 28. The volatility comes down. Um, you know the VIX is in the low 40s now. Bearing in mind, anything above kind of 30, 31 is pretty uninvestable. Um, and, and that's a hat tip to Keith McCulloch, a hedge eye. Again, massively recommend those guys. Uh, but they're not easy to get. Like you, if you think. You can't just look at his tweets and understand their process absolutely not you have to pay for all their services you have to pay for it um, and then you literally have to study it for months and then eventually you'll start to get where they're coming from and i think they're amazing um, i don't do everything they say but it's a um, huge help and gives you a really rigorous process at the heart of your investing so yeah probably new lows um, and what's going to catalyse that is well, right now I've already heard the term peak COVID, so I'm sure that's what people that want to be bullish stocks are going to talk about. Uh, but then the reality of um double-figure millions of people already 10 million will get more data today from US. This is going to be happening everywhere, but you know, US has more frequent data for this. But, you know, there's going to be hundreds of millions of jobs lost due to this around the world. That does not get solved overnight. Um, anecdotally hearing about things like you've know, got friends in u.s so someone like a- 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 apollo trading who's on twitter you know he has a second business which is in the events industry and it's basically in a bad way tried to get small business loans with all this stuff couldn't get it went to big banks small banks got told basically no so it's not as easy as steve mnuchin's trying to say with his big checks um it's you know This is the reality. Banks aren't going to want to take credit risk at this time unless they absolutely have to, and it's just going to be a mess. So I, and you know what? If I'm wrong and it's not, and it is a V shape, and the market stock market goes up, fine. If I lose the first twenty percent of the move, who cares? Like someone told me once, it's like having a hamburger. You don't need to get the the buttons, you want the meat in the middle. So you want the 60, 70, 80% that's the meat in the middle. You don't need the, let's say you know, 10 to 20% on uh, the other end. You know, anyone that says they can time the bottoms and the tops is lying. All right, so let's wrap it up with the kind of key lessons. So I'd say you should track data yourself. You can learn from others. And Twitter is an amazing resource for this. Like, it's just, wow, you can ask experts all sorts of questions, and a lot of the time you get a reply, and sometimes you do it in private, sometimes in public. But if you're not tracking data for yourself, how are you ever going to understand what's going on? You're just not. And the point is, you've got to think of the... Keith at Hedgeye talks about this, the, the OODA loop, which I just thought was just weird at first, but... Um, so... You, the OODA loop is ultimately a way to um have you, you, you gotta orient it, um it's all about the moment. So like Bernard, Bernard Mandelbrot talk about it it it's not about the average, it's about the particular moments that matter. And so the most important uh sorry there's some background noise here so if you track for yourself then when that moment comes and you you've written down all the stuff every day um then you're going to you're just going to have much more clearly know what to do versus if you're needing someone to hold your hand so next thing is just Big lesson for me, just don't listen to banks, mainstream media, politicians, friends. Like, you, you don't know what they're investing. People only tend to talk about their winners. Well, you'd be objective. Work things out for yourself. But, of course, take um, you know, listen and get ideas from other people. Absolutely, no, no problem doing that. And then definitely manage risk. So if you don't track implied volatility closely, you should be. And if i just said that sentence and you don't really know what i mean you need to make that your number one priority to learn about if you don't understand so you know, a lot of people use say trading view. so you know, i've just literally a on my phone and therefore on my desktop a um whole list of just, it's just called volatility it's just got every volatility metric on it so you've got everyone knows most people know about the vix but you've got gpz for gold ovx for oil you've got TYVIX and the move for bonds um the move index is i think owned by um ice now and, and you can't get it for free but ty vix is fine it's treasury yield vix you've got b for bitcoin you've got um evx for euro jy vix for japan yen like japanese yen like Again, just track, know what's going on with the volatility regimes of all these different asset classes before you're looking at the price action. Um, And if you've got, and then if you look at implied volatility, if you've got large implied volatility discounts, which we have right now, for example, XLK was almost 60% IV discount yesterday. Um, And it was 57% the other day. um, And I did short it. And I did then cover and made a small small game. It's good. But that just shows there's a when there's large implied volatility discounts, there's, there's complacency. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's bearish or bullish, but right now it means most likely that there's complacency um, and people are being too bullish with their complacency, but it can work the other way around, right? Um, you've got to put all these things together. But really study volatility. I'd say that's a big learning I've had in the last few months. And then size appropriately so a you know remember 50 percent down needs hundred percent up to be break even and great advice from I think it was Daryl at Hedgeye, I whose head of research was don't need, basically don't be a hero if you're stressed about your position your position size is too large now we have everyone who says that has been in a situation where their position size has been too large at some point. Um, and I certainly have, I still probably am um, with some things, but, um, but again, but also it depends. So what I found is that a position you've held for say years, like a, just a long-term thing that you really understand. So let's say you're a gold bug, right? And, and there's nothing wrong with that. right? But um, And you've had, of your net wealth in gold. Okay, fine. Well, and you've had that for years. Well, if gold corrects 10% and gets really volatile, you're probably not going to sweat it so much because you've lived and breathed that asset for a long time. But if you've just put, like, immediately put, like, 25% of your net worth into a new asset class you've never traded in your life before and it goes against you, you'll probably freak out. So especially with how low trading fees are, or well, indeed they're zero for a lot of things. I mean, they're not for options, but they are for many things. Um, get into positions slowly. There's no rush. You're, there's too much of this emotional um, thing where you feel that, oh, I have to get in now because you know it's, the market's all going to go my way and I'm missing out. Well, remember, the first thing is not to lose money. So one of my learnings is played around a little bit too much with puts when iv was a bit too high now don't get me wrong i've been doing it when there's been an implied volatility discount versus the 30 day big discounts of like minus 50 percent um but still iv 30 day iv is so high at the moment that sorry not iv is actual realized rv realized volatility um versus implied volatility now in the, in the options pricing futures pricing um that you know it it could go a long way down, so i'm not have I'm not buying any long term puts or calls now because then in effect you're sort of locking in a higher volatility um <clears throat> so then it made more sense to actually just go long short spot whatever the asset might be, which means you have to use more capital, but of course it's it, it's it's well, but it's linear right it's not an option which is you know kind of a more exponential return either way um and when volatility gets much lower i'll be looking to do some longer term um yeah but so for example yeah it, let's just, I don't know, just use Xs as an example i think maybe gold is a better example we can use gold as an example so gold i'd say is in a high volatility regime when um the gvz is above um 25 to 30. I mean, right now it's around 40. it went up a lot it didn't go up quite as high as it did in 08 but in 08 it got slammed more went up to kind of 60 or 70 but where where it actually kind of like can be is um you're talking uh sub 10 right Uh, it's not quite as low as a currency in terms of volatility so buying long term let's say you're bullish on gold long term now which is a perfectly reasonable thing but if you're suddenly going to buy a two-year call option with the volatility where it is now, you, you could literally get the price of gold right. And in two years, the vol is half what it is now and you, you're, you're basically crushed. So it's an interesting learning on just really diving into and if you're, whatever you're trading with. Um, so for example, if you use, um, I know let's pick a well-known one like Interactive Brokers, um, unless you're using their trader workstation, you don't get access to all this. And you have access to that, for whatever account you have. Um, if you're just using the web trader for example you you actually it's much harder you don't have access so spend the time to really understand volatility that would be my kind of number one thing Um, and definitely you know we all know when we're stressed with a position that's too large um, it's it also means you're going to make snap decisions on the trade Uh, it, it may mean you feel compelled to double down on a loser it may mean you'll feel compelled to take profits on a winner too early when you want to let it ride so um just set up limits and stick to them now that's for like day-to-day well not day-to-day stuff but you know, these things are generally not like that but um but if you want to have yeah if you if you're someone like i like to is take big strategic swings but not always then you've got to be patient and patience is a very important uh, thing to have and is along with cash is probably the two most important assets right now because none of us really know what's going to happen and if you just have cash and basically us dollars um and your your, your home currency of course yeah you know, th- then you can be ready to, to pounce if uh, think you know whatever assets do go down yeah and there will be more volatility ahead i'm kind of fairly sure on that um you know it does look like objectively that you know the world has changed we haven't seen something like this before okay let's leave it at that thanks very much and um let me know if you have any ideas for episode four